the investigation is going on uh, and it is of course very hard to investigate uh, considering that it's underwater and and everything welcome to the jolt it's friday the 27th of october and i'm sam morgan your host later in today's show we're going to look at how geopolitics are impacting cross-border energy links you'll have just heard estonian prime minister kaya kalas speaking about the 2022 sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. That still unsolved crime might not be a one-off. First up, let's take a look at some of the major climate and energy stories making headlines around the world. Spain's next government could ban short-haul domestic flight routes that are also served by a train link. A coalition including the incumbent socialist government is trying to find enough support to form an administration after an election yielded a somewhat inconclusive result back in July. One of the points on the agenda is a short-haul ban akin to the one France recently implemented. Much is still yet to be worked out, but if routes are served by a train link of under two and a half hours, flights could be axed. Madrid-Barcelona, one of the busiest domestic flight routes in Europe, could fall into that window, depending on what criteria are written into the law. One major problem facing the initiative, though, is that no high-speed trains currently stop at airport train stations, with the only first one planned for 2026. Airlines say they would need around 10 trains stopping every hour at major airports in order to effectively replace flights. One to watch, because if Spain follows France's admittedly modest lead on this issue, other countries like Italy, Germany, and maybe even the United Kingdom might start thinking about doing the same. Bulgaria has begun construction of a new nuclear reactor and will be the first country in Europe to use brand new technology provided by US firm Westinghouse. It will be Bulgaria's third active nuclear reactor at an existing power plant on the northern border with Romania. Construction is slated for completion in 2033 and a fourth reactor using the same technology will be built in the near future as well. Westinghouse's next-gen reactor type is only in operation in China and the US, and according to the firm can be powered up and down quicker than other reactor models, allowing it to react quickly to power demand needs. Bulgaria has also held talks with Greece, which has expressed interest in investing in the nuclear program in return for electricity imports. Nuclear power currently supplies about a third of Bulgaria's electricity. Plans to build a completely new nuclear plant at a separate location were recently shelved after construction failed to get off the ground. The Bulgarian government has been in talks with Ukraine about selling the Russian-made equipment it had already purchased for the project. The United Kingdom's government will decide later this year whether to allow the blending of hydrogen into existing gas networks. A consultation on the initiative closes today. You can find the link in the show notes. The vast majority of energy experts agree that hydrogen is a complete non-starter when it comes to household heating and that blending it into gas networks is nowhere near targeted enough to make the most of its potential. Staying in the UK, the Government's Energy Act received royal assent yesterday, meaning it is now effectively law. The Act grants Ofgem, the UK's power and gas regulator, a net zero remit, and also makes it the official heating regulator. The Energy Act also includes a regulatory framework for carbon capture, new powers to set up a state-run nuclear company, and a new scheme for sustainable aviation fuels. 
Tanzania will receive $19 million from the United Nations and the Top Climate Fund for an initiative aimed at improving living conditions for refugees by improving climate resilience. As part of a five-year-long project, 260,000 hectares of forest and ecosystems will be improved and conserved, directly benefiting more than half a million people. Unsustainable agriculture, deforestation and burgeoning population growth in western Tanzania has triggered crop failures and flooding as the environment degrades, so it is hoped that the project can help halt and reverse that trend. The UN's Environment Programme also hopes that this will be a success story that other countries can attempt to replicate, especially those that host a significant number of displaced people. The United States has appointed a climate denier as the new Speaker of the House. Mike Johnson is a longtime ally of the fossil fuel industry and will be the most vocal skeptic of climate consensus to ever hold the office, according to The Hill. Republican Party's Johnson has in the past denied that human activities are driving climate breakdown, saying in one public meeting that the climate isn't changing because we drive SUVs. Can America just be normal? Just once, please. That's all we ask. And an EU inquest into Chinese state support for electric car manufacturers has kicked off. The probe will begin with an initial sample of just three e-car makers, so the Brussels authorities can assess what level of subsidies have been granted, as they seek to make sure that there is a level playing field for e-mobility. US car firm Tesla, however, will reportedly not be part of that initial sample, despite shipping more electric cars from China to Europe than any other mark. Once this first inquiry is complete, the EU will have the option to impose an average duty on Chinese imports based on their findings. This could mean that companies pay a higher tariff than the amount of subsidies they are actually receiving. The three sampled firms would likely be subject to individual fees based on this initial probe. That's it for the news today. Now, let's get into the story of the moment. The seabed is littered with more than crab shells and seaweed, you know. Aside from old car tyres, pineapples under the sea, and treasure chests filled with pirate gold, there are also thousands of kilometres of cables and pipes, transmitting electrons and pumping molecules across borders from country to country. Energy interconnectors can be massively expensive projects that take years of planning and require governments to work together on their construction and financing. But they are also extremely powerful tools in the energy transition arsenal, as they can shift huge amounts of energy from one location to another, helping spread green electrons and molecules to where they are needed most. They also help build solid business cases for renewable energy build-out by expanding potential markets. By anyone's reckoning then, many more interconnectors, especially power links, are needed in the coming decade in order to get more renewable energy into the mix and help countries with fewer natural resources decarbonise their grids. But there's a rather significant problem. Undersea pipes and cables are relatively exposed, both to the natural elements and, critically, human interference. Often they pass through international waters, and, if they're long enough, pass through multiple jurisdictions. Governments basically have to have a lot of faith both in the technical resilience of these projects and the shield of international norms and law to protect them from damage. 
Hundreds of millions of euros are often wrapped up in these pipes and cables. At the tail end of last year, interconnectors made headline news for all the wrong reasons. On September the 26th, Danish and Swedish authorities reported seismic activity of some nature on the seabed of the Baltic Sea. Germany also reported a loss of gas pressure in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which linked it to the gas fields of Russia. The Swedish Coast Guard then confirmed massive gas leaks emanating from both the Nord Stream 1 and the never-used Nord Stream 2 pipes. I think we all remember the pictures of gas bubbling out of the sea. Uh, if you don't, check the show notes for what I'm talking about. Later, clear evidence of sabotage was found by the authorities. Nord Stream was an extremely controversial energy project which made Germany, and by extension Europe, very dependent on Russian gas. It's one of the few reasonable points that Donald Trump made during his dumpster fire of a presidency that Germany should never have built or never been allowed to build the pipelines in the first place, especially Nord Stream 2. In February 2022, before the incident, current president Joe Biden imposed sanctions on the company that operates the pipes, while Germany rescinded certification for the second pipeline. The very next day, Russia invaded Ukraine. Here's how Biden reacted to the pipeline sabotage in September later that same year. It was a, a deliberate act of sabotage, and now the Russians are pumping out disinformation and lies. We work with our allies to get to the bottom exactly what, it, precisely what happened. And as at my direction, I've already begun to help our allies enhance the protection of this critical infrastructure. Responsibility for the sabotage has still not been established. Three separate official investigations are still ongoing in Denmark, Germany and Sweden, while the intelligence services of other countries are also still looking into what happened. Theories, both plausible and conspiracy in nature, abound, ranging from a US or Ukrainian-led operation to an act of self-sabotage by Russia or even alien involvement, who knows. Whoever perpetrated it would have needed serious resources to carry out such extensive damage at such a depth. We may never truly know who did it. This month, interconnectors have been in the news again. On the 8th of October, the Baltic Connector, a gas pipe link in Finland and Estonia, lost all pressure. The authorities quickly realised it had been damaged, and after a couple of weeks of investigation, a Chinese cargo ship has emerged as possibly the prime suspect. Currently, the number one theory is that its anchor was dragged into and through the pipeline, although deliberate sabotage has still not been completely ruled out either. No final conclusions have been made, and the Chinese government has urged Finnish and Estonian investigators to be fair and balanced. To complicate matters further, a telecommunications cable between Sweden and Estonia was also damaged at around the same time. Estonia claims the two separate incidents are linked, while Russia has repeatedly denied any involvement whatsoever. All of this goes to show very clearly that undersea links are a risky business. To get a sense of how risky and what this means for the wider energy transition, I turn to Francesco Sassi, a research fellow who specialises in energy politics and markets. So, Francesco, uh, maybe you could just explain, first of all, um, what Italy in particular is doing right now in terms of um, protecting this energy infrastructure. I, I saw on Twitter you made this point about something, so maybe you could just um, explain what's going on there. So, yeah, basically what the CEO of SNAM said just two days ago was reflecting a reality of 
post Nord Stream sabotage of what happened the last year. Uh, so uh, the hitting and the explosion of the subsea pipeline in the Baltic Sea. And after that, uh, what we have seen everywhere, not just in Italy and not just in the Mediterranean Sea, but also obviously in the Baltic, but also in the Black Sea, uh, we are observing uh, military organizations, alliances such as NATO, cooperating with energy companies like Equinor, as an example, in the Norwegian and North Sea, securing the facilities operating uh, uh, offshore. I think this, uh, this situation developing from Ukraine and Nord Stream will affect also how companies will look at the energy security of these infrastructures also in the near future and in the middle and the long term. So also in the possibility of investing uh, in these infrastructures and the way of projecting these pipelines or LNG terminals, it will be much more relevant than a decade ago. I mean, do you think we could find ourselves in a situation then because of all these factors you described where you know, you've got big investment projects, you know, these cables, these pipelines that go undersea are by no means cheap. They're, you know, hundreds of millions and even billions of euros at times. Do you think that this will then start affecting the mindsets of governments that are thinking about putting money into these projects? And they think, well, why should we bother doing this if, you know, we have these genuine concerns that something might happen to it at some point? Well, I hope so, because we have, uh, witnessed uh, a very uh, strange era in the international relations, at least in Europe and at least uh, across the last uh, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. We have lived in peace. We have uh, not experienced the conf those conflicts which could affect the security of critical infrastructures. And I'm not just talking about energy infrastructures, but also telecommunications cable or uh, digital cables, the ones ex which will enable Europe to import uh, uh, electricity from North Africa, as an example. So these infrastructures will be much more affected in the future by geopolitics. And I'm sure governments around Europe are considering to invest or not in these infrastructures way more uh, than before uh, the starting of the war. Uh, and and again, this is not just about Nord Stream. This is uh, about all energy infrastructures and all international infrastructures. And right now, uh, the European Union is, is at a crossroad between the policies and strategies concerning energy security, but also you have uh, the energy transition. So how much do, are you willing to invest in an infrastructures which is under a constant security threat. And at the same time, you are supposed to not need, uh, to, to not need this infrastructure in the next 20, maybe 30 years. So again, financial, economic, political, and geopolitical consequences are all tied up in just one decision to invest or not in one infrastructure. It's gonna be, very risky, and uh, political authorities, I bet, in Europe will be much more concerned about investing and supporting these infrastructures. This is yet another facet of the energy transition, then, 
that has either been completely upended or redefined by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Energy market players have had an extremely rude awakening and now have to change how they do business in a rather short period of time. Many thanks for joining me for today's Jolt. I'll be back next week on Monday for much more of the same, bite-sized news updates and a look at a story of the moment. I hope you can join me. In the meantime, check out the latest episode of What Matters, which looks at how the recent election in Poland could change the country's approach to energy and climate. And stay tuned next week for a new edition of the Policy Dispatch, which is all about Brazil, the world's fifth largest emitter. Thanks once again to everyone at Foresight for helping to make the jolt possible, and shout out to Mute Island for providing the theme music. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the jolt. Thank you.